This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hello, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Welcome to our Late Boomers podcast. Today is very special because we present to you an amazing person named Seku Andrews. It's no surprise that Forbes magazine is called Seku, the de facto poet laureate of corporate America. His wow factor, and I mean wow, is in high demand with the world's most successful organizations, including Google, Viacom, Toyota, Nike, and so many, many others. A school teacher turned actor, recording artist, two-time National Poetry Slam champion, entrepreneur, and award-winning poetic voice. Seku is a multi-talented entertainer with over two decades of experience rocking diverse audiences. His work has been featured on ABC World News, MSNBC, HBO, Good Morning America, Showtime, MTV, and BET, among so many others. He has given pr private performances for such prominent individuals as Oprah Winfrey, Free, Maya Angelou, Quincy Jones, Larry King, Hillary Clinton, Coretta Scott King and family, and President Obama. Seku recently made history by becoming the first poet to be nominated for a Grammy Award for Spoken Word in 12 years for his album, Seku Andrews and the String Theory. Using creativity to build a business is one of the best ways to become successful in business. Seku Andrews has found a way to use the art of the spoken word to help inspire others to reach their peak, be it through performance or speaking engagements. So far in 2020, he and his company, Seku World, has won the Gold Entrepre Entrepreneur of the Year Stevie Award and two 2020 Independent Music Awards for Best Spoken Word Song and Best Spoken Word Album. We're going to start out our video with showing our listeners a little of what Seku does. And he brainstormed a little with us before we went on the air. To, to talk about what the theme is for late boomers. And I think he's come up with a really good plan for something to do for you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is exciting. It's so great to be on here. Um, and I appreciate you having me on, it's amazing. Um, so yeah, uh, thinking about the theme late boomers is probably a few things that are making me feel the embodiment of that, uh, of that phrase more than the birth of my first child that has just happened six weeks ago. My little girl has finally come into the world. And uh, just as my 
friends' kids are going to college and graduating from college, <laughs> we are buying diapers. So uh, I'm feeling very much like a late boomer. <laughs> um, and uh, it's because we've had a, an incredible fertility journey over the past six years with a lot of hardship and a lot of, uh, a lot of loss, a lot of losses, and a lot of resilience. And I think that that is something that people need to hear right now. And I think that's sort of the embodiment of remembering that it's never, it's never too late. So I'll share this piece that I wrote for my wife during the journey um, to hope and hopefully inspire you to think about how this might apply to your life now in this pandemic and your life in general. This is called Flawlessly Fallen, and it is actually a video that I have. It's, a, it's actually a longer piece. It's about a 12-minute piece, but I'm just going to... I've cobbled together a quick excerpt here, so bear with me if there's a few moments that feel disjointed, but uh, let's see what happens. Okay. Exclusive, exclusive uh, uh, performance on Late Boomers. Here we go. There are a few moments that leave me speechless, like choking on the silence of words that had been swallowed down the wrong windpipe. As I stood at the kitchen sink, feeling the wet from her soapy hands clung to my back, trying to process the whisper that fell from her cracked lips, I feel broken. I feel broken, she said, to which I said, nothing, too angry too furious at the empty in my throat for not pulling from my sleeve the comfort she sought most. It was all I could do to just hold her, like setting a fractured bone, like holding in how angry I was that the only thing broken seemed to be my ability to tell her how unbroken she is. I wanted to tell her that the only thing broken is the voice of a community that because of how silent it is, has no idea how large it is, has no idea how many women in this world, how many wounds in each room have hidden beneath blouses the scar of miscarriage like some scarlet letter M, too afraid or ashamed to raise their hand among strangers and let each other know they are not alone. That the only thing broken is this healthcare system that cannot seem to give us answers on how to manually operate a process that's supposed to be on autopilot. Now what's broken is the labyrinth of conflicting advice we get that tells us, hey, listen, all you need to do is get lots of rest and stay very active. Clearly that's what's best. So take lots of steps, wear lots of sweats, only wear socks or a dress on Tuesdays after next. Make sure you don't travel until third trimester and only fly private jets or on Southwest. And take these meds whenever you're feeling tired or depressed. Take these pills whenever you're feeling too happy and really blessed. Take these shots when you really want your savings to meet sudden death because every dose costs a mortgage payment. So don't make a mess. Remember, less is more unless more is less. So drink milk and avoid dairy. It doesn't digest. Avoid food that's never not unprocessed. Get lots of acupuncture, but only on your pets. Only orgasm when inverted and not touching any flesh. Put this ointment on your breast. Put your hips up during sex. Put your right foot in. Hop around on your left. Oh, and don't forget, you must get that killer cell test. But other than that, most important thing is don't stress. Are you joking? Don't stress. That is the epitome of advice that is not doing what it was intended to do. Maybe that is what I should have told you. That day when my words failed me, that the word broken merely describes something not functioning 
as it was intended to. But that first assumes that we understand the preeminent intention for it. See, we don't always know God's intention for a thing. So who are we to say that the thing is not working perfectly. See, your eyes often hold the power of glue from gold, the power to fill each hole and crack yourself whole. A hole, my dear, that is so much more than the sum of your scars. And you know this because when someone asks you about one of your scars, you don't respond as if to prove it doesn't define who you are. You simply tell them, oh, this, I fell. And this scar is the evidence that my flesh was broken, but me standing here is the evidence that I was not. I fell. And yeah, I've lived, and the life that I've lived since this skin was broken is the evidence that the person who owns this scar still works just fine. And maybe that definition of broken is all you ever needed to hear. So maybe if you are broken, baby, then you are broken like the thing that is better for being broken. Like bread at a meal that says, I share this with you. We experience this together. This is how you are broken, like the rivered skin on a grandmother's hands that hieroglyph stories of a life that worked perfectly broken, like the dam of a, dam of a mother's parental love as each kiss from her adopted newborn leaves her so-called curse of infertility broken, like a piggy bank come time to finally spend what was saved after so many rainy days broken, like world records that were always made to be broken, like dawn when sunlight fills wounds once broken, like your back, the night I stopped making love to you for reproduction and got back to reckless fucking, like your knight and shining husband, we are all broken in some way. We are chipped teeth and smiles, clenched fists and hope, bloody knuckles and surrender. And you are broken, baby, like whole. You are broken like right. I'm telling you now, my unstoppable wife, that you are broken like the flesh of a moment that will leave a scar. And years from now, our child will sit on your lap and will reach up and touch your scar like touching the angel wings hung above our bed like touching the ultrasound pictures placed in our photo album, like reaching into your belly and touching that scarlet letter M on your womb that was unable to break you. And our child will ask, mommy, what happened here? And you will smile at the amazing life of get up that brought you to that moment to be able to look lovingly at our child and respond by simply saying, I fell. Speechless. Oh. <laughs> not supposed to be speechless on a podcast. I'm just. I, I am speechless I'm as well. Totally. My tears are running down my face. Because <laughs> <laughs> I so relate to that, that poem so much. Because oh. I went through that and I, it's gorgeous. Thank you so much. Oh. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting your, me Your voice speaks to the gods. Yeah. And talking about your voice, yeah. you quit a teaching job to become a poet. <laughs> yeah. Tell us how you found your poetic voice and how do you define poetic voice? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, the last job that I ever had working for anyone else was 
fifth grade teacher, elementary school teacher in uh, South Central Los Angeles uh, about 18 years ago. And um, I quit to become the anomaly, the, the glitch in the matrix, the leprechaun mermaid known as a full-time poet. <laughs> 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 and, um, and haven't looked back. It's been an amazing journey and it has been filled with, you know, lots of wins and successes and pains and challenges as well. Um, but it's been, a, it's been a journey primarily of trying to pave a way, you know, pioneer a way. Like it's truly been trailblazing in that there were very few models for me to follow as a full-time poet and certainly not for the trajectory that I wanted to take poetry um, beyond the clubs and the cafes and, and, you know, the existing trajectory that a lot of spoken word poets in particular um, follow. And um, along the journey, I, I just, I knew, I discovered that a big part of my mission in life was going to be a legacy of, of helping to pioneer a more commercially viable industry for spoken word poetry so that, you know, poets after me could make a purposeful and a profitable living off of their art form and that break this, this uh, connection between the word poet and the word broke, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, and so that, uh, as I began to try to kick open doors for poetry, for spoken word poetry in particular, in places that the doors had never been opened for it, one of those places was the business world. Um, I started doing work for businesses and I kept getting relegated only to entertainment value. And I was like, no, this art form has the power to communicate dense amounts of knowledge and, and information and thought leadership. And why is it only being used in this way? And why are people telling me that it's only worth being used at the, at the company holiday party and not the senior leadership meeting? And so I started to kick open doors on the business side. And um, that's what led to me creating Poetic Voice as a speaking category. And so Poetic Voice is defined as the seamless integration of inspirational speaking and spoken word poetry. And so it's not, I'm a, you know, there are plenty of poets who are speakers or artists who are speakers. It's not, I perform and you applaud and then I speak and then set up the next performance and you applaud and I speak. But this is more a seamless integration where you just don't know when one ends and the next begins. And I move in and out of it in a way where it feels like one minute you're listening to a TED talk and the next minute it's Hamilton and you're going, what just happened, you know? Um, and so that was the unique aspect of Poetic Voice and what has made it so popular on the, on the speaking circuit and allowed me to build my, my communications company around it. Fantastic. I have seen some of your TED, your TED talk I saw, mm -hmm. and it really plays well because the people are just caught up in it and they don't realize how they're being instructed at the same time with yeah. the corporations. What yeah. was the funniest or most interesting thing that's happened in your career? I would definitely say one of them is being able to uh, open for Barack Obama. Ah. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, when, when you're coming up as an artist, a lot of times you fill your bio with, well, I shared the stage with this person and I, you know, open up for that person in it. And, you know, a lot of times that's, there's a whole lot of fake it till you make it this that goes on with that. You know, it's like maybe that person was in one room and 12 hours later you were on the stage with them or something, you know, and you're, <laughs> and you're, and you're making these claims. But this was um, a really powerful moment where uh, my creative partner, Steve Connell, and I, who often work as a duo, 
We had done an event for Oprah Winfrey for the party that she throws for Maya Angelou. Um, and that was another crazy kill me now kind of moment uh, where we were presented by Norman Lear as the gift of poetry to Maya Angelou. No pressure. Um, <laughs> uh, for her birthday. So we were literally her birthday present of poetry. And, and we killed that show and got on Oprah's radar. And so when she was throwing her party for uh, Barack Obama, we got this amazing call um, from the party, the, the uh, event planners. And they said, listen, it was like a Friday. And they said, we were putting on the event. We're gathering the talent for Oprah's party. We're going to present the talent to her on Monday. But she has already told us that she wants you. So wink, wink, you're already really in, because the word she used was, if nothing else, I want my poets. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, you know, we're going to be presenting all this other talent to her, and so we'll let you know on, uh, on Monday. And then, iron ironically, over the weekend, Quincy Jones' team called us and said, we want you for a Hillary Clinton party. <laughs> <laughs> And then we were kind of like in this weird, suddenly like this celebrity place where we had to figure out who we were for and come out publicly. And as a team, we were, there were, you know, I was for one person, my manager was for another person, one person was undecided. And so we ended up sort of saying, well, we have the, we have the relationship with, with uh, Quincy. He's already a great friend. Um, we were advised that we shouldn't do both. And so we ended up doing the, uh, the party for Oprah since that was the first ask. And we got on stage, we did our, our set, and afterwards Obama got on stage and he, started, he was just quoting us. And he was like, like Seku said, like Steve said, we need to, and we were in the backstage like, oh my God, I'm quoting on this <laughs> So it was like one of those amazing moments of like, if you have to have somebody quoting you right after your presentation, having uh, President Obama do that was pretty amazing. Wow. Tell us more about performing for him. Were you were you nervous when you were up there? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, there's I always believe and I teach that there's a, a, a certain amount of nervousness you want to you want to keep, you know, um, I don't I try not to ever completely eliminate nervousness because I think that's what leads to you appearing canned. You know, we've always we've all seen that presenter where it's like, OK, this is a good speech, but I can tell she or, or he has done it a thousand times and they're just on autopilot, you know? Whereas you can sense when a presenter or an artist is present and they're in the room with you and, and they believe something might go wrong. So they're aware of that. And you believe that something might go wrong because you can see them aware of it. So you're all, it leads to both of you being on the edge of your seat a little bit more. So we, we definitely kept uh, a bit of that, probably a bit more nervousness than normal <laughs> because it was such a high stakes crowd. It's a celebrity crowd. It's Oprah Winfrey. It's, you know, Barack Obama and Michelle Obama are right there. And so, you know, there's been these, these daunting moments that I've had in my life. And that was certainly one of them. Probably one of the other ones was, you know, having the, the Grammy nomination that we just did. Um, which was also connected to an Obama. <laughs> oh, yes. Because, uh, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, uh, I got the first Grammy nomination for a spoken word poet for best spoken word album for the first time in 30 years. And unfortunately, I was going up against a little local act. You may have heard of her name, Michelle Obama. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so naturally, she took it. And of course, that was a great competition to have. So, it, you know, it just makes me think of like the trajectory that I've had with them over the course of my life where I've been involved with them in these ways that they ne weren't necessarily aware of, you know? And I know you've been 
very involved with training speakers and people to find their own voice. And what advice would you give to up and coming performers to how to find their voice and, and what would you tell them as a routine to go on stage, for instance? Oh yeah. So, well, I think my advice to up and coming performers would be um, first be dope. I always say that just be dope, be excellent, be, be amazing, hone your craft, be, be great. You know, there's too much crappy talent out there. Um, and there's too many, there's too much talent that have made it on everything else but talent. They've made it on connections, they've made it on commercialization and so forth. So first be amazing so that when you make it on all these other things, who you know and so forth, you can stand on real strong talent. Um, and then the second thing after honing your craft is, um, is you know, trust in the power of your voice and the influence of your voice. Be conscious of, what, of, of the fact that someone's listening to you. You know, someone is taking your words to heart. Art, art is a very, very powerful tool. And so someone is going to be inspired by you to do something. Be conscious of what you inspire them to do. Um, <clears throat> and just remember the power of, of your voice. When I, you know, a big part of my mission is to help people to find their most powerful voice. And so that's why I do a lot of the training that you mentioned. Um, I created a speaker training system, a communications training system called Stage Might as in stage fright to stage might. And it uh, basically helps people to understand how to be mighty communicators by learning the techniques of rock star performers. And so it's not, plenty of speaker training programs might say use an acting technique here um, or an improv technique here, but stage might is a system that was based completely off of performance techniques. It was based off of the concept that I have become a successful public speaker, but I was never trained as a speaker. I was always trained as a performer, and I used that in my non-performance communication. So I know how to craft messages like a songwriter that get him stuck in your head. Um, I know how, yeah, I think you were just mentioning the I am awesome piece, right, that I, that I did. Well, you heard that years ago, and people can still quote that to this day. Um, I know how to use my body like a dancer. I know how to create authenticity using acting techniques. I know how to own the room and become distraction-proof by learning how an improv artist think. Um, and so I, I use the techniques of rock star performers and, um, and I create this step-by-step -step system called stage might. And so I think, you know, if I was using a stage might technique to help people with, to control their nervousness, one of the things I teach is, is called the rock star ritual. And it's to say that a lot of times you think about it, when you guys have seen speakers go on, uh, uh, backstage before they go on stage, what are, what are they often doing? They're drinking ice water, they're reviewing their slides and their notes. Maybe they're not even backstage. They might be sitting at the table with the CEO hobnobbing, right? But if you go backstage to a ballet, what do you see people doing? They're stretching, they're warming up their instrument. If you go backstage behind a play, you know, uh, before a play, they're, they're, getting, they're getting into character, they're thinking about their intention, they're figuring out how to own every space in the room, authenticity, warming up their vocal instruments, et cetera, et cetera. So performers approach the stage differently than, than presenters do. Performers say a, a presenter may approach the stage with the mentality of, I hope they don't fall asleep. <laughs> you know, I, my, my, whole, my biggest goal is that they just listen all the way through and, and don't check Facebook. But a performer approaches the stage like, I want them, when I jump off this stage into the audience, they better catch me. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, a, it's, an, it's an entirely different level and standard of the type of engagement you're going to create with an audience. 
And so I go into every presentation, digital, Zoom, podcasts, uh, 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 you know, on camera, big stage, small stage. I go into it with that mentality of I'm going to engage like a performer. And so I go through a rock star ritual before I go on stage that, that activates my emotional energy, that clears my mindfulness, that focuses my mental energy, my physical energy. I'm warming up every instrument that I have so I can create maximum impact and be as mighty as possible in all of my communication. Any wow. one hint that you can give us on that? So uh, there's, sure, if you, if you think about uh, what puts you in the state of mind that you want to put your audience in. Um, and so if you, if you think about um, if your goal is to get, you know, to create an electric energy with your audience, then how can you make sure that you're, what is that thing that gets, that electrifies you? Maybe it's music that you need to listen to. Maybe it's prayer that you go to. Maybe it's meditation. Maybe it's talking to your child. I, you know, sometimes my wife will call me and do what I call a cheerleader call right before I go on stage and baby, you got this and it's going to be amazing. And this is what you were built for. Like whatever it is that, that gets you in that state of mind. One of the other tips I'll give you is create a relationship with your audience before you, before you walk on stage. One of the things I do to do that is I, I take a peek um, from backstage. I'll pull the curtain you know, aside a little bit and I'll take a peek at the audience, watching them watch the presenter that's on before me. And I'll watch who, who are my laughers in the audience? Who, who is that woman or that man that is leaning forward in their seat, loving it? Who's constantly laughing and smiling? Who's sitting there asleep? Who's sitting there checking their Facebook? Who are the quiet ones? And therefore, I, I create this relationship with my audience and I recite my speech or my poem or whatever it is that I'm doing. I recite it quietly to myself while I'm watching them. So that way, by the time I step on stage, I, it's like I'm performing in my living room. I already, oh, here you are, girl. I see you, you my laugher. And hey, dude, I see you over there. I'm coming to you later. And you, the dude that sleep in the front row, I'm not even worried about you anymore because I know you were like that for the person before me. It's nothing personal. And I've got this relationship with them now. So nothing throws me off. And energetically, we're family and I have a good time. Brilliant. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to watch that before every podcast. <laughs> yeah. So who are the people that have inspired you through, throughout your life? Well, here's the thing. I am in the inspiration business, and you are in the inspiration business. One of the messages that I give to my audience is, no matter what business you're in, remember that you are also in the inspiration business, which means you have to find ways to be inspiring, which means you also have to find ways to be inspired because in order to be inspiring, you need to be inspired. And if you, are, if you recognize that you're in the inspiration business, then you recognize that you don't have the luxury of sitting and waiting for inspiration. Used to be, I could wait for it. Used to be, I'm in love and I'll write a love poem. I'm mad at my mom or my dad and I'll write a mad at my dad poem, you know? Um, and now it's, uh, you know, now I always joke that it's, I got to get out a diabetes or a cloud computing poem by Friday, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I have to go mining and digging for inspiration. Um, I don't have the luxury of waiting for it. And as a result, I have to find, be active in finding sources of inspiration. And it may be something completely different today than it was before. So I have my general go-to, you know, 
poets that, in, that, that inspire me, Amira Baraka and Rumi and, um, and Sonia Sanchez and folks like that, Maya Angelou. Um, I have my contemporaries, um, po contemporary spoken word poets who inspire me, the, the uh, Steve Connells, the Andrea Gibsons, the Talame C's of the world. Um, I have the singers and songwriters and artists and hip hop artists and so forth that inspire me, the Roots and the De La Souls and the, you know, all of these folks. Um, so I'm, uh, writers, of course, inspire my writing. But then there are just that image of a little kid falling down and getting back up that might inspire my piece about resilience. Or it might be that image of, you know, that, that mother um, holding her sick son in an emergency room and, and waiting for help that might be what inspires a healthcare piece. So I'm having to constantly stick my antenna up and mine for inspiration and then store it and say, I was inspired by something today that I might use in six months that might inspire someone in another six months that might inspire the world in a whole way that was a ripple effect that I was, I was responsible for. And how do you store that info for yourself then? It goes in your brain or your computer or a journal? All of the above. <laughs> yeah, that's what I had a feeling. Yeah, there's a, I've got I've got tons of notes in my phone and tons of notes in my computer and sometimes I'm amazing at organizing them and other times I you know I'll sit back and discover something today that was perfect for a piece I wrote a year ago and I struggled to figure it out not realizing I had already had it in my computer <laughs> you know oh dear yeah that's <laughs> so. Now, yeah. what, what what are your favorite causes that you're working on now? What are your what's the most pressing cause? Because I know you've been very involved with many. Yeah, well, certainly, um, I think the causes that I have been involved with over time, I've always maintained a commitment to education, coming from a teaching background. So when I left the the formal elementary school classroom, I knew that I was not leaving the classroom. Uh, I still train people, I still teach people, I still educate people in various ways on just bigger world stages. Uh, I'm, I've always been, uh, you know, connected to environmental causes as well. Um, and so I've done tons of, you know, organizations over the years that have been involved in environmental causes. Um, of course, social and racial justice, which is, which is heavy on the mind right now, as usual. I, I, I come from two Berkeley black radicals, you know, my parents were involved in all of the uh, revolutions and shaving heads and daishikis and Kwanzaa ceremonies when it was just 12 people in the living room, you know. Um, and so I, I come from that spirit of, of, um, of social justice and fighting particularly for racial justice. My very name means warrior, black warrior or fighter for black, Sekou Iyusi. Um, oh. So, you know, that's a big part of my, of my uh, experience and my continuum. Um, and lately, my voice, if there's, if there's a cause that is new for me, it has been prison reform. Um, oh. I've become very interested in prison reform, and I'm just starting to use my voice now and to write pieces or perform for organizations that are working in the prison reform industry because it's starting to just call to me as one of the biggest injustices that I'm, that I'm experiencing right now. Wow. Good. And that's so important. Yeah. I, and I think your voice could help reform a lot of people, too. Yeah. Um, 
your YouTube video disruption really gives the experience of just that disruption. The whole world feels that right now with the pandemic. What would you say to us to help us cope? So disruption mindset shift is the, the speech that you're referring to. And it is uh, that and DIY innovation have been two of my most popular keynotes that I get booked for for every industry, every you know country and geography, every type of audience. Why? Because everyone, every organization, every company, every business and industry has been trying to figure out how to become more innovative and trying to figure out how to prepare for disruption. Everyone knows that disruption is coming. So the reason why I've been killing it with these speeches for the past five years, say, is because disruption has been on the mind of every organization, whether you're land title reps in real estate or you are, you know, cloud computing folks or you're apparel or whatever it is. Um, but what's interesting is COVID-19 came along and took people's five-year disruption plan and turned it into a five-month disruption plan, <laughs> you know, and now suddenly where they were already going and what they were, the types of things they were already beginning to think about, they suddenly had to put into action and execute on um, in a truly, uh, you know, built to change the tires as the, as the cars in motion sort of uh, uh, way. And so I think that the biggest message that I give to people as I'm talking about disruption now and really having a disruption mindset is to help them understand how to have a resilience mindset and to really understand what resilience is because everyone's looking at pivoting and adapting and shifting and that's what that that's what that speech does is it talks about you have to sort of own and in, in own disruption so that you so that you're not afraid of it you have to prepare for disruption so that when it comes you can dance with it you have to become disruption so that when it shows up it's not this boogie monster but you are as much a disruptor as the person that you're facing and so it's a mindset shift well now you got to put that in high gear and so i think that people are experiencing that not only on a business level but on an emotional personal level you're you're not just thinking about it when you go to work in your company or industry but you're thinking about it with literally your job will it exist and how do i need to shift my my uh, my resume my offerings in case i need to in case my position is eliminated because it's no longer relevant for the next year or uh, my kid's school or my family life or my, my marriage or the, my sick parent or my newborn child during the pandemic. All of that, our lives are being disrupted on so many levels all at once that I think resilience is one of the core ways that you can um, begin to fortify yourself is to just think about things that you can do to build your resilience. And one of those things is to be intentional with the things that you know make you strong and intentional with the things that you know that are part of your reassembling. I started off with that piece, Flawlessly Fallen, because it talks about that feeling of my wife being broken. And I talk about how not, not part of it is us learning to reassemble ourselves each, each time that we broke by digging deep into our resilience and our ability to get back up. But also part of it was recontextualizing the way that we saw the, the word broken 
and realizing that it's not that we're broken, it's that this, the way that we are working is part of a greater design to get us somewhere that was not part of our plan, but it's part of a bigger plan. And the more that you begin to, to, to uh, recontextualize and reperceive that journey, then you can find the joy in it and you can find the acceptance in it and the surrender in it. And the more that you find those things in it, then you build that strength up to say, it's, you know, it's about the going through it to get into it. Like one of my favorite quotes, if you're going through hell, keep going because you understand that I'm, I'm not going to hell, I'm going through hell, which means there is something on the other side to get to so I can keep going and I just have to find those, work those small muscles and train those small muscles that give me the strength to pivot and shift and get to it. Awesome. We've talked a bit about the Grammys and a little bit of disappointment, but your trip to the Grammys as nominee for spoken word album was certainly saddened by the death of Kobe Bryant that very morning. And what was that like for you to be going to your Grammys? Yeah, you know, um, the call that I got about Kobe came from Ken. I don't know if you know Yeah, that. I know. I was there yeah, with him. We there, right. And so... We said we better call Seku right now. My husband, Ken Cragen, he's talking about. Yeah, it, it was... It was surreal. Um, I, I think, it, I mean, it, it, it was an extreme intense metaphor for life and how life can be. And certainly the beginning of what we're in now, um, you know, this was the Grammys was the end of July, uh, end of January. So this was, even though it feels like it was five years ago, <laughs> it was actually yeah. this year, you know, but it was the, one of the last things that we all did together, um, before before isolation. And so experiencing both this sense of incredible joy and, and just this win and this once in a lifetime experience and, and being in the limo with the, with the string theory, which was the symphony orchestra that I recorded that album with. Um, and, and, you know, all of us just singing, we, I, I remember we had a video of all of us gun, uh, singing, everything's going to be all right. You know, every, we're all just like singing and enjoying and so forth. And in the middle of that, I get the call about Kobe. And now we're in this place where we're walking into Kobe's home. We're about to yeah. celebrate the incredibleness of our experience. Staples Center. Of the Staples Center uh, with, with his jersey hanging around and so forth. And everyone was just caught in this juxtaposition, you know, of like celebration that we can't let it take away from who we're alive. We've made it. We can't let it take away from our joy. And yet we have to honor our mourning. And if you think about it, like that is the metaphor that we're in right now in this world. We cannot let this pandemic take away our joy, but we have to honor our mourning. We are, we are losing things left and right, whether they are jobs, whether they are time, whether they are our perceived sanity, whether they are human contact with friends, we're mourning things left and right. And yet we have so much to be thankful for and we're here and we have possibility and we have opportunity now and we have to, to and we have joy. We have to be intentional about finding our sources of joy and honoring the, the things that we're losing. And so I really look at that day as probably an unexpected um, preparation, a crash course preparation for the months that follow. Wow, great yeah. to on it. Yeah. Um, talking about your activism a bit earlier, your art has always been a voice for your activism. Talk about writing the poem, Love Says. 
So Love Says is an amazing journey of intention and divine intervention. We, so probably six years ago, maybe, I was invited to do a show with the symphony orchestra, the Pasadena Pops Orchestra, by the conductor Rachel Warby. And they were doing a reimagining of West Side Story, which is about the power of love reaching across social boundaries, right? Different races, different gangs, et cetera, et cetera. Inspired by Romeo and Juliet, which is about the power of love reaching across social boundaries. So we decided to write, have me write a piece that was about the power of love reaching across social boundaries. And of course, I was bringing it into contemporary times. Well, what was happening during contemporary times back then was the Eric Garner case. And I was, and the piece was incredibly inspired by Eric Garner, the, the murder of Eric Garner to the words, I can't breathe, that were haunting us um, that, during that time. And so my piece culminates in the words, I can't breathe, as, as you know. And, um, and then, you know, then nothing, then I just performed the piece here and there and so forth. Now fast forward to a year ago and I meet the String Theory, a 50 person neoclassical symphony orchestra from Berlin, Sweden and Los Angeles. And um, we, we fell in love with each other's work and we decided to do an album. I decided to pursue a Grammy with that album. We uh, recorded we decided which pieces were going to go on the album and I was uncertain about putting Love Says on the album, but they fell in love with it. And so they were like, please put this on the album. And so I did, we recorded, they, they composed beautiful music to it. You have to check it out. It's on iTunes and at, you know, Tidal and Spotify everywhere. Um, and, um, and we got the Grammy nomination and it was, and we made history um, with this sort of first time in 30 years for a spoken word poet to actually get the nomination for best spoken word album because we're always competing against giant audio books from presidents and celebrities. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we, we uh, decided to, we shot a few music videos for it. And the third music video was gonna be for Love Says. We had a date in March, beginning of March to shoot the video. That week, the studio hit me up and said, um, we haven't, but we're having a budget issue. We're over budget. We're thinking we need to push back the shoot and figure out the financing. We talked about it for a few days and everyone involved, especially on their end, they just felt like, you know, we're thinking about it. We all love this piece. We feel emotionally connected to this, the social justice aspects of this piece. And we just feel like we're just going to do it and then figure out the money afterwards. Well, talk about divine intervention. We shot that video on a Friday, Monday, the shutdown happened. And so we would not have been able to get that video out and that piece out had we waited. Well, that wouldn't have been as big of a deal, um, except then suddenly the pandemic hit, right? So they said, hey, let's hold off on releasing the video until we're through all this pandemic noise. And I said to them, okay, I agree, but let's finish editing it because there is going to be something that happens that will make this piece relevant. And we want to be ready for it as a response to inspire the world around that. Now, honestly, we thought it was going to be something related to the elections and the divisiveness. But lo and behold, a month later, George Floyd gets married, gets murdered to the words, I can't breathe. And we were just like, oh, my God, what if we had not recorded this? What if we had not listened to our heart? And luckily, we had this piece as a response and we released it. 
and it celebrates the, the power of love, but also the complicated nature of love, that love and hate are, are two sides of the same coin that we're grappling with throughout, throughout history and that we have to, we have to dig into the, uh, into the depths of love to find that kind of love that bleeds and that sweats and that tears and that fights for what is right, but it still has to be steeped in love, steeped in looking to each other's eyes, seeing our humanity so that we can make different decisions. And so it's very much connected to social justice, to racial justice, to police accountability and so forth. And at yeah. the end, you get a kiss. <laughs> I get a kiss. My wife made her debut and for the her first <laughs> debut in one of, my, uh, one of my videos where I talk about just as the rage is bubbling up in me, suddenly my wife kisses the back of my neck and I turn to see her and I'm reminded of the, the duality of love. And my, we actually brought my wife in and uh, she, she kissed in the back of my neck and it's one of my favorite parts of the video. It's really a, it's really a powerful video because it, it's so simple and classic, black and white, words being projected, giant words behind me, as well as just words projected on my eyelid and word, you know, the word hate projected on my tongue and just these really powerful visual statements that I think will, uh, will you know, are, are inspiring people. We're getting great response. I yeah, absolutely it, adore it. I just adore that. It is so powerful. And growing up like I did in public schools, we took music education for granted. I adore your music movement on your new String Theory album. What a strong way to argue for the importance of music in education. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the line, one of my, it was one of my favorite lines when I wrote the piece. Um, uh, with, with music programs raising test scores by 20%, Cutting funding for music to save money for English and math is like removing a car's engine to save money for gas. Yeah. And I just, uh, I, to me, it's like that sums up that sort of music and edu education component. And even, Catherine, uh, Kathy, the music movement was also this divine moment because I, when I wrote that piece years ago, I remember I'd just written it and I had a new manager and I said, I wrote this piece about the power of music and I wanna be the first spoken word artist to hit the Grammy stage and perform like opening, you know, the Grammy ceremony with a piece about music and perform it with all these amazing musicians. And I could see Stevie Wonder, Beyonce and Bono and all these people performing with me about the power of music on the Grammy stage. And then, you know, unbeknownst to me, Little did I know, I mean, the whole Grammy stage vision didn't happen, but then that, that piece gets on, a, on an album that's nominated for, for the first spoken word Grammy in 30 years. So, you know, it's just, you know, the power of words, man. You gotta like be very conscious about the words you say and what you put out there because people are listening, you know, the, the universe is listening and you never know how it's gonna return to you. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us a little more about your family, because you mentioned being a new dad and, and the fact that you're now working with diapers <laughs> <laughs> and, and e eating when you can grab a bite. Oh, man. Talk about late boomer. You know, this is the true embodiment. I, I, I'm definitely a boomer. Uh, not only do I have I was born with good tubes, so I got a, I got a booming voice um, and, you know, physically a booming voice and then metaphorically um, a booming voice out into the world. And now I have, you know, 
given birth to the next generation of my booming voice at a late time in my life. I, I swear one of the next pieces I'm going to write is going to be called Old, Old New Parent. And, oh, good. <laughs> and just talking about, you know, all the the unique aspects of bringing a child into the world um, during your mid forties, you know, where, as I, like I said, as I'm watching all of my kids, all my, my friends, kids go to college and graduate from college and I'm changing diapers um, and it's during a pandemic, no less. And so there's an, I probably one of the most interesting aspects of that is just the socialization component, you know, like I'm missing the, I'm missing the, the the tribe component, the community component of being of my community being uh, I'm sorry, my baby being surrounded by my community. You know, um, I did, and so again, this is as we talk about being intentional, and you ask about how do you stay resilient and inspired and so forth during these times. We have to be in, we have to be extra intentional with the things that might have been on autopilot before. Something that we did that was easy and we didn't have to think about it, now we have to be very intentional about doing it. Whether it's diet related or nutrition related or time with your kids related or family related, whatever it is. And so for me, I had this vision of being surrounded by family in the delivery room, you know? And I'd have my, 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 my parents there and my, and my boys there when I was there for their kids in the delivery room. And we'd be, you know, popping rose and lighting cigars and I just had this, vision, you know, of all the tribe that's been involved in this six plus year journey. Um, and suddenly no one could be there. Luckily, I was finally even able to be there, you know, a month and a half before I wouldn't have even been able to be in the delivery room myself, which would have been tragic. Um, and finally, they started letting the, the dads and the partners in. Um, and but no one was there. And so about a, three weeks later, I was talking to my wife, and I had wanted to do a whole virtual cigar lighting thing with some of my friends and I just gave it up because there was too much going on. And she was like, no, I think you should do that. She was like, you talk about being intentional with, uh, with all of your audiences and, you know, and you, this is a way that, that I think, this is something that's important to you. And this is a way that I think that you need to be intentional with this. And it's not too late. Like just because you couldn't do it on the day, day of delivery doesn't mean you can't do it. And so on her one month, uh, on her one month birthday, we, uh, we got together with a bunch of my friends. I had my, uh, my team sent them all cigars. <laughs> One of my boys bought us cigars that said it's a girl and we mailed them to all of my friends around the country, a bunch of my boys. And we just got, got together and we fellowshiped as men and talked about fatherhood and talked about like stories from their father and stories of them being fathers. And they just all gave me advice and poured into me. Here's what you should expect. Here's what I want for you. Here's what I see for you and your girl. And it was just so powerful and so beautiful to just have so many men kind of surrounding me and sharing and joining my tribe of fatherhood um, since I've been a part of their stories and it took being intentional. And I think that's really what I'm having to remember with this beautiful girl and everything that I do with work and managing my life and being there for my wife is we're just having to be extra intentional about what we want for her and for us during this time. What's her name? Her name is Zolani. Zolani. X -O That's beautiful. X-O-L-I-L-A-N-I. -I. Wow. And does yeah, it have a it special meaning? It means of peace. Ah, perfect. Yeah. yeah. Well, and we're going to have to wind it, up. Our what I love about it, Kathy, is that the poet in me loves that her nickname, Zoe or Zozo, is XOXO. -X -O. 
And so she'll always be hugs and kisses every she'll time. She'll always be <laughs> hugs and great. kisses. I love that. <laughs> and we've got to wind up a little bit today. Our yeah. guest today on Late Boomers has been the one and only Seku Andrews, the poetic voice. All our listeners should, should look up Seku on YouTube and watch the videos. He's on Instagram at Seku World. And if you need all his corporate speaking talent information, check him out on SekouAndrews.com. Thank you so much, Seku. Thank Thanks you. so much, Seku. And we're going to let you say goodbye to our listeners. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Kathy. Thank you, Mary, and thank you all for, for listening. I hope you got something out of this. I hope that you will remember uh, to stay inspired and to stay inspiring and to, uh, to be mighty in all that you do and how you use your voice. I appreciate you and stay in touch. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? <laughs> I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven-module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand, and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, Go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.